What makes a good leader? I was reflecting on that this week and thinking about how, you know, at one point in our history, we probably would never have even questioned the idea that we need good leaders, but it seems today that there's a lot of distractions going on in the culture. Uh, We seem to fail to recognize our need for good leadership, but we do need good leadership. Right? Every, every person, every organization, every nation, if they are to survive, if they are to thrive, we need good leadership. We need it within our, our homes. We need it within our churches. We need it within our communities. We need it within our governments, within our organizations, our businesses. We need good leadership. There is a need for good leaders. And, if, and even if we're not able to identify the cause of some things, we have all experienced and have suffered under poor leadership in different areas. Like, that's something we've experienced. Even if we can't identify it back to that root cause, that that is is something that we have all experienced. But we must ask the question, what makes a good leader? Well, I asked Google that question, because that's, of course, that's that's the thing you do these days. You got a question to ask, you just ask Google. Google's got all the answers. We trust the internet, right? Well, I found several lists. These are the characteristics of a good leader. Boom, boom, boom. Here we go. I'm going to share one such list with you. It's, there are a variety of lists. There was quite a few overlap with the majority of the lists, so there's slight variation, but this, I found this to be pretty representative. The 10 essential qualities of a good leader. This is according to Walden University. Number one, clear communication. Two, a passion for the job, an indifference toward being popular. They needed to be open-minded. Number five, they needed to work for the employees rather than the upper management. Six, they needed to be positive and encouraging. Seven, show respect for others. Eight, build relationships. Nine, lead by example. And ten, be a constant learner. These are the ten essential qualities of being a good leader. That's the list. And really, you know, it's actually not a bad list. Those are all good things. Those are things that we ought to be pursuing. Those things are desirable in a good leader. I don't know if you noticed something that might be missing from that list. What about character? What about integrity? ethics, morals. If a leader is not first a leader with high moral character and integrity, they are not going to be a good leader. If a leader is not first a leader with high moral character and integrity, they are not going to be a good leader. They're going to be tempted to make poor ethical decisions in the interest of whatever something they might be seeking to serve, whether that's an employee, whether that's a company, whether that's their own selfish desires, whatever it might be, they may further a cause, they may lead things into what might seem like success. But absence of character will ultimately lead to their demise. And we see this even just the last couple of weeks with some of the stuff that has come out of CNN and some of the things of the, some of the main people there, of just the immorality that is just rampant and the connections that has come through in recent lawsuit through all this, we see this. 
When Scripture approaches the topic of leadership, there's, there's a reality that a leader needs certain skills. One of the qualifications for a leader is that they are, this is in the New Testament, one of the qualifications for an elder in a church is that he must be able to manage his own household, and that is a rubric, a, a kind of an indication that they'll be able to manage the church well. That church takes certain skills, certain abilities for that to be accomplished. But when Paul is giving his qualification list, he spends more time discussing the character of the man rather than his practical skills and abilities. Leadership is more than skills. And Scripture is immensely interested in one's character far and away more than the skills and the abilities. Good leadership begins with godly character in the heart. And that is precisely the kind of leadership that Israel was lacking in the book of Judges. Turn with me to the book of Judges now. This is our study that we're going to begin working through, and we do have quite a bit of preliminary discussions that we need to have as we approach this book of Judges. Last week, I I gave a bit of a historical lecture of sorts as I just kind of surveyed how it was that we got to this moment as we open up the book of Judges and read the first verses. How did we get here? We saw the formation of the people of Israel with the calling out of Abraham all the way through to the calling out of the people out of Egypt into the promised land. And today, my goal is to give an overview of some of the, the basics of the book, the overall theme of the book, some of the the background information, some of the surrounding things to help us get a good grasp, lay a good foundation for our study as we begin to move forward with working verse by verse through this book. So we begin with a question, okay, we see the title of this book, what does it mean? I'm not seeing it come up on the screen here. Hit it one more time. Nothing's happening. Try one more time. Nothing's happening. You're probably going to have to advance it for today. The book of Judges, we have this this title. Judges. Sometimes uh, Old Testament books, it's an interesting thing when you compare the the Hebrew manuscripts of what the title is, and when you look at the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, that's the Septuagint, when you look at the title a book might have there, and then when you look at some of the early translations into Latin and the different languages and such, sometimes the titles, they're a little bit different across the different translations. It's not a big deal, it's just the, the reality of what we find there, but here there's consistency. It's always the book of Judges. It's like that in the the Hebrew manuscript, the Greek manuscript, everything. It's always the book of Judges. However, there's some interesting details about why that is called the book of Judges and what is called to mind when we think of a judge. First, this, this book, obviously it gets its name from the characters of the book, right? We have these judges within the book, but it's an interesting detail that the book never actually identifies the individual's as judges in the proper noun sense. It uses verbs to describe their activity, so-and-so judged Israel for so many years. 
So there's an activity that is taking place, but it doesn't identify them as in, a, in an office, so to speak, but it does identify their activity. The word itself also doesn't have the same connotation that, that we would think of when we think of the word judge. We think of someone who's sitting in a, a courtroom. It's a legal setting. They are rendering verdicts. They've got the gavel, right? Guilty, not guilty, etc. And they're adjudicating the law. Well, the idea, the Hebrew word for judge here, it has a slightly different range of meaning. It refers more to the idea of ruling or, or governing and delivering. Thus, the connotation is more about leading the people rather than judging in a legal judiciary sense. And so, Daniel Block is an Old Testament scholar, and uh, it's a tremendous resource that he has on the book of Judges. He suggests that a more accurate translation for the Hebrew word that captures the idea better is the book of tribal rulers. These are individuals, they're leading the people, they are ruling the people, but this, we're in the early formation of the nation of Israel. They're, we're in the tribal stage here. Or you've got the tribe of Judah, you've got the tribe of Benjamin, and they're not really organized in a sense. There's no structure of government. But you have these rulers, and they're leading these tribes. So we might call this the book of tribal rulers. Second, we have this idea of, well, now I think I've messed it up. The author of the book. Officially, we don't know who the human author is. It's unknown. Tradition, the rabbinic tradition uh, attributes this to Samuel, and many people consider Samuel to be the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And so they think that he possibly could have written this. However, there is some internal data within the book that seems to suggest that Samuel would have died at least by the time the book was completed. It's possible that he wrote portions of the book, even significant portions of the book, but there's some things within the book that makes us say, well, this, at least this portion of the book was written at a later period after Samuel had died, and so we don't want to say strictly that the whole thing was written by Samuel. We find this phenomenon in a few books. We think of the book of Deuteronomy. It's written by Moses, except for the last chapter when it details out that the fact that Moses died and what happened after the death of Moses. We find the same thing in the book of Joshua. Joshua likely wrote the book of Joshua, but at the end of Joshua, we find a record of Joshua's death, his burial, etc. Well, of course, Joshua couldn't have written that because he was dead, right? So, someone penned those final words and appended it to the book. And so, something similar is possible within the book of Judges. But we do find some time markers that help us get an idea of when this was written. We see phrases like, in those days there was no king in Israel, suggesting that at the time of writing the book of Judges, there was a king, at least of some sort, that, that was there. But in those days, in the book of Judges, there was no king. And then we find other phrases such as, they set up a monument just as it is to this day. I mean, there's a historical marker that can be placed there that we can kind of figure out a little bit of what is going on in the time frame. Ultimately, who wrote it doesn't truly matter to a great deal. It, it is a relevant question because it gives us clues as to the purpose of why Judges was written. The time frame of the book, it's uh, 
It's not quite as fixed as many historians would prefer. We like, we like strict timelines. We like these things. Um, there's some few difficulties within the book that make dating and figuring out the timeline of the book a little bit difficult. But it seems that we have approximately from the year 1380 to 1043 B.C., that time period, roughly 350 years. Although, again, there is debate about some of how the timeline works out. We have these individuals. We have judges that likely overlapped in the rulership. These are tribal rulers, so you might have had one guy interacting with with this tribe over here and another judge interacting with this tribe over here. And they, are, they occur at the same time. They're concurrent with one another. They're contemporaries with each other. And so, though we do have some time markers within the book, so-and-so judged for so many years, we don't have a strict chronology. We don't have a strict uh, year-by-year explanation of the things. And it's clear that within the book, the author of the Judges isn't trying to put forth an exact perfect timeline of history. He has particular purposes that he is writing for. And so the genre of the book is one of theologized history. The author has a purpose. The author has a reason for why he is writing. If we were to have a, a picture of a chart of the different genres of the Old Testament book, you might have seen these. You might have you seen like, oh yeah, the first five books, that's the Pentateuch, and then you have the books of history, you've got the books of poetry, you've got the major prophets, and you've got the minor prophets. I'm sure you've seen uh, kind of charts similar to that in the past. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Judges would have been collected with what they called the former prophets. This would have been a collection within, even though it was describing history, they recognized that this book was actually a prophetic book. This isn't just a mindless recounting of facts without a motive or a purpose. There is a homiletical purpose to the book of Judges, a homiletical, you could almost say sermonic purpose to the book of Judges. When I say it's prophetic, obviously we're not talking about telling of things in the future, but rather being a mouthpiece for God. God has something He wants to communicate to the people, and this is what is happening through the book of Judges. It is a theologized history, accurate history, but a theologized history. The author presents us with a harrowing storyline of what happens when Israel gets too comfortable with the world. It's a message of warning to the author's contemporaries, a message that bears significant weight and relevance even to today. And it leads us to a discussion of the theme of the book. The theme is the the Canaanization, it's a little bit of a tough word to say, the Canaanization of Israel and its need for a king. The Canaanization of Israel. What we're going to see in this book is, again, I I referenced Old Testament scholar Dr. Daniel Block. He coined this idea. He coined this word of the Canaanization of Israel. And this has really been the kind of the go-to description of what's happening in this book. Whenever anybody sits down and studies this book, the, the commentaries that have come out after Daniel Block released his commentary, they all kind of point back to this moment that this even though this idea was communicated in previous commentaries, Daniel Block didn't come up with something brand new that's never been thought of before, but he did coin this term, this canonization. 
And it's a helpful term that helps us think. The Israelites were called to be holy. Right? They were called to be set apart. They were called to be different. And here we find in the book of Judges an increasing cycle of them becoming more and more like the people of Canaan in the world around them. They began to get comfortable cohabitating with them, intermarrying with them, embracing their false idols and living like the world around them. Again, God called that nation out to be a nation set apart unto Him, to be a holy nation. But instead, they were blending in with the world around them. There were times when the people repented and God showed them mercy, but each time through the cycle, through the book of Judges, and we're familiar with those cycles, the, each time the people and the judges, even themselves, they got worse and worse and began to look more and more like the world around them. Last week I gave the illustration from the, from the sermon that I sat under when I was a child from my pastor about the three chairs. The first chair Christian sold out for the Lord, and the next generation comes along, their second chair where, yeah, they, they attend church, but they're not really as invested in things of the Lord, and then the third chair that are in danger of walking away from the faith altogether. And that's exactly what was happening to the Israelites. The first generation after they were rescued mightily by the hand of God through the, through the working of the judge, they, they were sold out to the Lord again. They praised God for the mercy that He extended to them in their life. They were that first chair Christian. They put away their false idols. Yeah, I said Christian. They weren't really Christian. They were first chair Israelites who were true unto Yahweh. And the next generation comes along and they failed to communicate the things to their children and those children began to embrace the idols of the Canaanites. And the next generation comes along, and there's no thought to Yahweh whatsoever. Yahweh is forgotten in favor of whatever gods are in the Canaanite culture around them. The result is degradation and a display of depravity amongst the people that rivals even the world itself, that's going to call us back to, is going to call to mind Sodom and Gomorrah by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges. As we do get towards the end of the book, we see the repetition of the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. We see that four times in the last two chapters. Like the author is hammering home a point. That these people needed a king. They needed a leader. They needed someone to, to show them, to lead them in what was right. But it's not like there wasn't any king. In fact, we would find in the, in, when they do ask Samuel for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say for you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They had a king. His name was Yahweh. They had rejected that king. They had rejected their king. And the result was this degradation and these cycles that they went through. And God sent them rescuers. God sent them judges to rescue them from the hand of their oppressors. But each time the cycle came back around, they strayed further and further. And even when they came back, they didn't come back as close as when they ought to have at the start. 
They rejected the Lord as their king. They desired an earthly ruler. But because they rejected the Because of the rejection of God as their king, they lost their way. They had no leadership. The judges were ultimately insufficient to direct the people unto the Lord. And so they found themselves in need of a king once again. And we know that God eventually did give them king. He gave them King Saul. And eventually God gave them King David, which is a man after God's own heart, right? But we know that these men were fallen men themselves. Saul, because of disobedience and jealousy, he forsook the one who had made him king. David, despite being identified as a man after God's own heart, he committed many gross sins that ought to be shocking to us. How could God's leader stoop to such levels? And the kings that followed, Solomon, and then the kings were split, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and all the lines of kings that came after them in the the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. There were a few good kings in there, but most were downright awful, despicable, wicked rulers. Are these the kings that Israel needed? Is these the ones that that they they needed, that they just so desperately looked for? They needed God to be their king again. They needed a king that was also divine. And the book of Judges shows us that the Israelites, they needed a king. It shows us that we need a king. But the rest of the Old Testament shows us that if that king is just a mere human leader, it's insufficient for us. We need the king. We need King Jesus. And so the overall theme of the book of Judges is the the canonization of Israel and its need for a king. There are a few sub-themes that support this main theme that we will see as we move through the book. We see the covenant faithfulness of God on display as He is faithful to rescue His people when they repent and turn to Him. Just like He promised He would do, He rescues them. We see the righteous judgment of God against sin. When the people rebelled, He judges them, just like He promised that He would. And we see the cycles of sin as the people alternate between faithfulness and rebellion. Before we get into the the main text of of the book of Judges itself, I, I do want us to make a few comments on method. How do we approach studying this book. Whenever we teach through New Testament books, it's, it's pretty common for us to… it's pretty straightforward, right? When Paul makes a point, when he communicates something, we say, okay, yeah, this is what Paul says. We need to embrace that. And we need to seek how to live that out in our lives. Paul says, be kind to one another. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Well, it means you be kind to one another, right? It's pretty straightforward. But when we get to the Old Testament… Things get a little more difficult, don't they? At least it seems like they do to us, right? Uh, Many Christians simply don't know how to handle Old Testament texts. How do we learn from it? What are the stories teaching? Many Christians don't know how to handle it, and so sometimes it's tempting for us to just say, you know what? In fact, I've, I've heard these comments from individuals, not, not ever spoken to me, but I've heard them from other individuals. Why bother studying the Old Testament at all? We're the church. 
We're in the church age. That's Israel. That's the Old Testament that was given to Israel. Why should we study that? Wouldn't we be better served just sticking with the New Testament? It was God's revelation to the church. Let's just stick with that. There's a little bit of irony in this objection. And the irony is that the Old Testament or the New Testament itself places a very high value on the Old Testament. Many texts directly quote or allude to an Old Testament passage, and the best way to understand the New Testament text is to understand the Old Testament text in its context. Furthermore, Paul directly states the value of the Old Testament Scriptures when writing to young pastor Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul writes, But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures here. Right? When, when Timothy was a child, there was no New Testament. And as Timothy had grown into a man, the New Testament was still being written. Paul is talking about the Old Testament being able to make someone wise for salvation because they show us Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is profitable for correction, for teaching, reproof, training in righteousness. And if that's the case, we don't want to ignore that. If this is what the purpose of this letter or this, this writing was for us, we want to embrace that. We want to learn from it. Furthermore, we have the testimony from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And then finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, we find Paul making direct application to our lives based on Old Testament narrative. Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So we do well to study the Old Testament. It is part of our Christian Bible for a reason. But the question still remains, how do we do it? How do we approach these texts? There have been a variety of approaches to the Old Testament over the years, there have been some approaches that I would identify as less than charitable or less than, less than helpful if I'm being charitable, like not, not the greatest of approaches. So I, I mentioned the first one already. We could ignore it, right? It's, it's Old Testament Scripture. It's, it's for the Jews. Let's ignore it. Well, we've already established. No, this is God's Word. We don't want to ignore it. This is what God has for us. We want to embrace it. It's for our instruction Another approach that some people take, I don't know why whenever I tap it, it just takes me back to the beginning, so you're going to have to advance it. 
You could ignore it. You could moralize it. This is a common approach in things like children's Sunday school, uh, children's church, uh, storybook Bibles. Veggie Tales was great at moralizing a story, uh, Bible stories. The idea is that we look at the stories and we boil everything down to either there's, there's either an example to follow or there's an example of what not to do. And everything is just boiled down to that. They get reduced to heroes and villains. So you see Gideon, look at his faith. Now you should have faith too. Who look at Samson. Man, that guy, got, he got tangled up with some women that he should not have. That is an example to avoid. Let's not do that. And there certainly are some examples that we could look at. And it's certainly valid for us to see, okay, yeah, there are some things. Okay, yeah, I should do that. I shouldn't do that. But if we're just reducing everything down to that, we're missing the point of the text in the first place. We don't want to reduce everything down to just moralizing the stories. Another approach to take is you could allegorize the text. Sometimes people try to find a spiritual significance from seemingly mundane details in the text. So an example of this, Gideon went out to fight the Midianites and he did so at night. Well, if we allegorize the text, we might say something like, well, the fact that he fought them at night symbolizes the trials and the tribulations that we endure because they occur in the blackest of night, and sometimes we have to face our toughest enemies in the darkest of nights. Allegorizing details, spiritualizing details about the text. But is that what the text is trying to communicate to us? Is there some secret spiritual meaning in every detail of the text, and we just have to try to figure out the code and, and unlock those things? Is that what the author meant to communicate? I think he was just telling us that Gideon went out at night. <laughs> right? That's what the text says, and we see that. We want to place those details in the context of the story as a whole and learn what it is that God is seeking to communicate through the whole story. Another form of this, and this is something that is more common today, I, that spiritualizing details that was more common several hundred years ago, less common today. It's still in a few places, but a more common approach to a similar approach that I still think fits within this category is that we are attempted to insert our own lives into the text and consider how we can be the hero just like the character in the story was the hero. This is famously done with David and Goliath, and we read the story, we try to insert ourselves into the text, we become like, I am David fighting against whatever Goliath might be in my life at that time. And to quote a famous preacher in a famous sermon addressing this kind of mentality, you are not David, right? That, that is not the point of the text. It's not the point of the story. The story wasn't given so that you could learn how to vanquish all of your foes if you just do X, Y, and Z. So we don't want to allegorize the text. Another error to avoid is typologizing the text. The approach to typology, typologizing the text, this is today is commonly called a Christocentric hermeneutic. And of all the errors in the 
approaches to Scripture that we don't want to take. I think this one has the initial impression of being good and virtuous and one that might seem like a good thing to go. I mean, why wouldn't you want a Christ-centered approach? Or we've got on our banners, we exist to glorify God. Why proclaiming Christ? We want to be Christ-centered. Why wouldn't we want to take this approach? Well, according to this approach, because, again, this is according to this approach, because Jesus said in the New Testament that all the Bible is really about Him, we must seek to find Him on every page and in all the details. So, this is based on Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples after His resurrection. And the text says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted it to them in all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. Therefore, according to this approach, every detail about Scripture is about Christ. Can you go back one a minute, Liz? Take five off for now. All, according to this approach, all of Scripture is about Christ. It all points to Christ, and our job is just to figure out how. But is that what Jesus said or what was happening in that Luke text? I'm going to read the text again. Listen carefully to what is said. It says that Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He didn't say every detail is about me. He did say that, it it does say that when something was about him, he made that plain to them. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. But nevertheless, that aside, this this approach, it leads to what is is called a typological approach to the text, where everything becomes a type of Christ. Now, I recognize and embrace the fact that there are genuine types of in the Bible. Scripture uses the language of typology, and if you're not familiar with typology, that's the idea that there is something in the Old Testament that foreshadows something, it foreshadows the fulfillment. So, there's, there's something going on, and it's, it's giving hints, it's giving clues, and we find the fulfillment of that thing in the New Testament. Examples of that would be the sacrificial system. It's a type of Christ. It's foreshadowing the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would accomplish on the cross. And there are different things that Scripture itself identifies that was a type of the one who was to come. This this Christocentric approach to a text, this typological approach, seeks to take this concept and apply it everywhere, even where Scripture does not apply this kind of approach. So, everything becomes a type. Everything prefigures Christ. Everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. Now, we have to be careful with how we talk about these things. On one hand, I do agree that Scriptures do point us to Christ. In the Old Testament, the whole narrative, the whole flow of the Old Testament, it is leading to a particular point in history, and that is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It points us there. It leads us there. But we don't want to do so in an artificial way. How we get there matters. I want to to give us an example for how this approach would lead us to think about the text. There's a famous preacher. He was commenting on a story at the end of the book of Judges, and it's one of the more shocking stories in the book. We have a man 
There's a concubine. He comes to a city. The men of the city want to rape the man. The man says, no, here's my concubine instead. And they literally rape her to death. He then cuts her up and sends her body parts across the land to show the evil that has been accomplished in the land of Judah. It's a horrible story. It's a wicked, wicked thing that occurred in the land of Israel. Well, where are we going to find Jesus? Where's the type of Christ? According to one well-known preacher, the man who gave his concubine to the men, he is a type of Christ in the sense that in every way that that man failed as a husband, Jesus will succeed as the bridegroom of the church. He won't throw us to the evils of the world. He will protect us, and He will bring judgment against the world. And I just have to sit back and ask, where does it say that in the text? We don't have any indication anywhere in Scripture that that was the point of the text. In fact, by, by trying to force this framework onto the text, I think we're missing what the author of Judges is really trying to communicate. Right? The author wasn't trying, to, trying to, to point us in this direction of saying, oh yeah, this man is, you, you need to think of Jesus Christ whenever you think of this man. He wants us to dwell on the depravity. He wants us to see the wickedness of it. And the point of that story, the whole point of Judges, is to lead us to this point of seeing, again, this need for the king. And again, this does point us to Christ because we see the need for the king and we know that the need is for the king. So we do eventually want to get to Christ and we do eventually want to, to see how this drives us there but we want to do so in the way that the author intended us to get there. We don't want to miss the message that the original author is seeking to communicate. So these are the ways that this book has been attempted to be taught. We want to avoid them. The question then becomes, how should we approach the text? And I'm going to suggest that we need to seek authorial intent. We need to seek authorial intent. What did the original author intend to communicate? What was his purpose? What were his goals? And we seek to learn this through studying the words on the page themselves. We want to observe the literary devices, the story structure, the purposes as they are revealed within the text itself. This is known as the grammatical historical approach to studying Scripture. And once we know what the original author's aim was, it is through that that we can find that with the principles that he was seeking to instill within his original audience, and then we embrace those principles and we see how those apply to us today. This method helps us take the original intent, the original goal, and apply it into our lives just as the original author would have sought it to be applied a consistency with the original author's intent, something that none of these other methods can accomplish. So that is how we are going to approach the text, discern its modern applicability. As we begin to move into the text, here's the, here's the outline that we are going to be using. This is a very broad strokes outline. Obviously, there's further divisions within these uh, headings, but we have the prologue. 
Israel's failure. This prologue in the first few chapters of the book, it sets up the book. As we'll see, the cycles in a moment, this, the, the, prologue, the prologue sets the stage for how these cycles begin to get into place in the first place. It explains how the people failed to drive out the people that God said to drive out and how that decision resulted in their eventual demise. And so we see as we move into the cycle of the book of Judges, and we'll see how this cycle repeats itself over and over. If you want to put the cycle up on the screen, this is an image. You might have seen something similar to this. This is very common to see when we observe the book of Judges, that there is this cycle. And this is the traditional viewpoint of how we see this. We see that the land is at rest. The people are serving the Lord. Well, they come to a point, the generations fail to observe the law of the Lord. They rebel against their God. So God brings about retribution into their lives. He judges them for their sin. As they are enduring oppression and hardship, they begin to realize that they need to call out to the Lord again, and so they repent. And God does just as He promised He would. He brings restoration back into their land, and there's rest once again. And the cycle repeats itself over and over again. That's the traditional view it's pretty much everywhere as you begin to study the book, and it's, it's a helpful formulation. However, I would like to make one adjustment to this, and it's not to the details itself, but it's, it's just how it's visualized. The traditional view, there's that cycle that goes, and it just seems like it goes in a circle. However, I would like us to see it more as a, as a declining cycle, right? It's, you see the spiral staircase, they are as they go around the cycle, as they repeat the cycles, it's a downward trend with each cycle. The cycle itself is the same. We have the rest, rebellion, retribution, repentance, and then restoration. But each time the cycle goes around, they are descending further down and away from what God has commanded them. The judges get worldlier. The people get worse. By the end, we're left scratching our heads. How in the world can some of these men be listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Because they are. Gideon, Samson, some of these individuals, they're listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But when we read the story, we're just left scratching our heads. How did this happen? And we see this downward descending cycle as the people continue on in rebellion. It's not just circular, but there is a descending into a depravity that again would call to mind the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I had hoped to begin working through Judges chapter 1 today, but we're going to hold off on that for next week. Uh, We've been sitting here for a minute now. So, let let me conclude with these comments here. I mentioned that this is a bit of a depressing book. We see this downward trend, this downward cycle descending into depravity. But we know the story of the Bible. We know that this book of Judges is one moment in history setting the stage for us as we continue to move through redemptive history 
we know that just as this book reveals to us the depravity of the human heart, that God did not leave us in this state. Yes, the people are in need of a king, but God gave us that king, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it is through the hope of Jesus Christ that we can have mercy and grace. Whatever atrocities are committed, whatever sin has been in our lives, we know that there is mercy available for us. If, if this people can be redeemed, there's hope for you and there's hope for me. And so we find that in the person of Jesus Christ. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy, it's more. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this book as we have just kind of surveyed it, overviewed it, considered how we ought to approach the book. God, I do pray that as in the days moving forward, as, as long as You may tarry, as we study this book, pray for wisdom, pray for guidance, pray for receptivity. And I pray, Lord, that even as this book presents such a sad picture of the Israelite people, Lord, so often we are just like them. And we need you. We need the King. Pray that you would reign and rule in our hearts, and I pray that we can be lights in this dark world, lights unto the gospel, that we may see more individuals enter into your kingdom, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious Son. I thank you, Lord, that even though as we see the sins of the people of Israel, Lord, you were faithful to redeem them, faithful to send them the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and Lord, He is our Messiah as well, so that though our sins are many, yet Your mercy is more. We rejoice in that today, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.